There's possibly no passage in Scripture that is more hotly debated than Acts chapter 2. Arguments abound over who, what, where, how, and why. In fact, just about the only thing people agree on is the when of this passage. These events happened when the day of Pentecost had come. And today, we'll try and sort out the passage and bring clarity to these momentous events. Well, welcome back to the podcast. Or if you're a new listener for this episode, it's nice to meet you. I'm Greg Hall, and let me just say, today's episode is not going to disappoint. You may not like what I have to say. You may not agree with me in the end. But to be sure, just like my 10th birthday, it's going to be fun for everyone, at least for a little while. And before we get into the text today, I have an update on the All America Listener Challenge. In this challenge, you don't have to dump a cold bucket of water over your body. You don't have to swim 25 miles or swallow a heaping spoonful of sriracha sauce. No, all you need to do is listen to the podcast and encourage others from each of the 50 United States to do so as well. All the updates are at the RethinkingScripture.com website, and I'm happy to announce that we've had listeners from 31 of the 50 United States of America. This last week, we added a listener in Trustville, Alabama. That means we only have 19 states to go to round out the map. And just like my weekly workouts, the All-America Listener Challenge map, it's a little weak in the midsection. We are still needing folks in places like Kentucky and Missouri, Nebraska, and Ohio. It's time to work on our abs. So get on that social media of yours, find your friends that live in the midsection of the United States, and let's get on it. Well, let's dive in and get to the text for today. We're talking about Acts chapter 2 and the events surrounding the day of Pentecost. And as I mentioned earlier, this is one of those passages that causes some amount of anxiety for many people. And to be sure, it is a strange story. Sounds of wind, but really no wind there. Tongues of fire floating around. People speaking strange languages. It's no wonder good Bible-believing people can't seem to agree on what it all means. And today we're not going to try and answer all the questions. But we are going to take a close look at the text and rethink how the events of that day might have actually played out. We'll be spending two episodes to sort through everything, so get ready to hold loosely to all your preconceived notions about Acts chapter 2. Let's dive in and speak coherently about talking in tongues. When I was in college, I went to a small college in Tacoma, Washington, Pacific Lutheran University. We were the lutes. Our mascot was a stringed instrument. <laughs> I wrote for the school newspaper when I was in school. Among other assignments, I had the softball beat. I wrote about the softball team. It was a good assignment because our softball team at PLU was ranked nationally almost every year. They won a lot of games. And as a journalist, what you're supposed to do when you write a story about anything is to make sure to answer the five W's and the H. 
You're supposed to supply the reader with the answers to who, what, where, when, why, and the H, how. If you leave one of those out, the story might not be very clear, and confusion may ensue. So, just like good reporters, let's discuss all those items for the events in this chapter. Some of these I've already discussed a bit in episodes 38 through 40. That was the three-part series I did on the Rethinking Babel project. And in those episodes, we talked a bit about the why. We looked at the Old Testament context of God communicating with humanity. And we pointed to a theme, a, a thread in the biblical literature. So if you've not listened to those episodes yet, I'm not going to go back and rehash everything I said there. You'll want to give those a visit. Today, though, we will discuss the who, when, and where. And in the next episode, we'll take a look at the what. So, for Acts chapter 2, let's start with the who question. Who's involved in the story? And as simple as that question may sound, it is anything but simple. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 reads, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Who are we talking about? Well, clearly it's they. (laughs) They were all together. But who is that? And to find the answer to that question, we need to go back into chapter 1. Remember, the chapter divisions were not in the original text. Those were added sometime in the 1500s. But this chapter break seems to be in a good spot because it appears there's a gap in time between the last verse of chapter 1 and the first verse of chapter 2. So if we make our way back just one verse to the last verse in chapter 1, we find a they there as well. It says this, And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. The they, in the last verse in chapter 1, refers to those who drew lots to decide who is to take Judas's apostleship. And that could refer to the 120 brethren to whom Peter was speaking that day. But it could also just refer to the 11 apostles. It's unclear. But what is clear is a reference at the end of the sentence. Again, it says that Matthias was added to the 11 apostles. So the closest antecedent for the they there on the day of Pentecost, the closest antecedent is the 11 apostles and Matthias, the 12. And I believe that's the who that chapter 2 begins with, the 12, not the 120. Now, there are good people who land differently than I do on this, but I think the apostles, as the antecedent, makes the most sense. That's who was together in one place. And later, I think the text actually helps us out with this conclusion, because at the beginning of Peter's sermon, that's in Acts 2.14, Peter takes his stand, it says, with the 11 other apostles. And then again in Acts 2.37, when the crowd was pierced to the heart by Peter's sermon, the crowd addressed Peter and the rest of the apostles, and they were asking what they should do. It seems like Luke, the author of this text, is inviting us as readers throughout the whole chapter to see the events as happening to and being led by the 12 apostles. Who spoke in tongues that day? I believe it was only the 12 apostles speaking, and it was the crowd who was listening. And it's here where a bit of Old Testament context might do us some good. And to do that, we'll also need to look into the when of this passage. 
So I've already mentioned it at least twice. It was the day of Pentecost. That's the when. But this wasn't a brand new day that Christian believers started. Pentecost is the Greek way of referring to a festival that's otherwise known as the Feast of Weeks. It's called Weeks because the way it's described in the text. Let's go back to Leviticus 23, verses 15 and 16. It says this, You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. So, one is to count seven weeks. That's the instruction here. And it's seven weeks from the Feast of Firstfruits. That's 49 days. Then the next day, the 50th day, is another celebration day. It's the Feast of Weeks. And in Jewish culture, this festival is historically tied back to the time of the exiles, the ones that came out of Egypt. It remembers the time when that group of people arrived at Mount Sinai. But not just their arrival there, this feast also commemorates the reception of the law given to Moses, the beginning of the Old Covenant. That's what Pentecost was, the day every year on which the Jews were reminded about the reception of the Mosaic law and the establishment of a covenant with God. So in Acts 2 chapter 1, when it says, when the day of Pentecost had come, when Luke chose to state it that way, it was a phrase pregnant with cultural significance and meaning. And that particular festival was also an ingathering feast. That means the Jews had been instructed to gather together in one place on that day. In general, they were to go to Jerusalem, but there was more specificity than that. They were to gather at the temple on that day because they were to present a new grain offering to the Lord. Leviticus 23.17 says it this way, They were to bring in from their dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering, made of fine flour and baked with leaven. And along with the bread, there were a number of other offerings made that day. Several lambs, a bull, two rams, drink offerings. It was a big day at the temple that involved not only individual families, but also the temple leadership representing the nation as a whole. It was a big deal. And again, it was the time to remember God's covenant and apply it to the current generation of believers. Lots of activity going on there at the temple on the Feast of Weeks. So that's the when, the Feast of Weeks. So when Luke says in Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. There's really only one place that makes sense. They would have been at the temple. That's where devout Jews had been called to gather during the feast. But is that the most likely location for this event? To look at that a little more closely, we'll need to move past the first verse of the chapter. So as we move on in our journalistic endeavors, let's try and answer the where question for this passage. Again, in Acts 2.1, it says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they, and I just suggested that that means the 12 apostles, they were all together in one place. But where was that one place that they were all at? 
lots of people go back to the last location that was mentioned in chapter 1. And that's back in Acts one thirteen, where it says, When they had entered the city, they, meaning the apostles, went up to the upper room where they were staying. So when we get to chapter 2, and the same apostles were all together in one place, many people think they were in that same upper room. But I think the text gives us more than that, because in the very next verse, it says that there was a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And, and notice, it doesn't say the whole house where they were staying. It's the house where they were sitting. Kind of an odd description. Why would it mention the house where they were sitting? And you might say, but they were clearly in a house. And I would agree with you. And wherever this house was, it is where they began to speak with other tongues. And it's also where a large crowd came together. That crowd not only gathered, but they were able to gather in such a way that allowed them all to hear the apostles speaking in tongues. And I would suggest there's only one house big enough for such a crowd, and it's God's house. And it was a big, big house with lots and lots of room. It was the temple. But why do we think that Luke would have ever referred to the temple as the house where they were sitting? Well, first, we're reading this from a modern-day perspective. And to be honest, we generally don't study the Old Testament today as much as the Jews of that day understood their scripture. I'm just going to take you back to 1 Kings chapter 8, and I do this in my Bible survey classes all the time, just to point out the language that's used to describe the temple structure when it's eventually built. And it's in 1 Kings chapter 8 that the ark is brought into the temple. Solomon has built the temple. David has preceded him by acquiring the land. And now the ark is being brought in, and that temple will be dedicated. The only caveat is this. The Old Testament writers, in describing the inauguration of the temple, they use the word house. And the Hebrew word is really the idea of a dwelling place. So when the author of 1 Kings described the dedication of the temple, here's how they described it. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the house, to the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. Skipping down to verse 10, it happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand or minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. It's described as house again in verse 16, again in 17, again in 18. Verse 19, nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who will be born to you will build the house for my name. Verse 20, now the Lord had fulfilled his word which he had spoke. For I have risen in place of my father David, and I sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And then in Solomon's prayer of dedication, he asked this question, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. The word house is used ten more times in the remainder of that chapter. But then, interestingly enough, he gives a warning in verse 6, 1 Kings 9, 6. God says this to the people. 
But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And here it is, the house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? So as we go back into the Old Testament context of the temple that's built in Jerusalem by Solomon, there's an inner sanctuary, there's different parts of this structure, but the structure is referred to as his dwelling place. It's his house. And ringing in the back of that temple inauguration ceremony is this warning that God gives, that if the people ever turn from him, God says, don't think that this house is the end all. Don't think that I won't take it away if that happens. It will become a heap of ruins. The reason I think that's important is because I think that might be in the background of what's going on in Acts chapter 2. Throughout his ministry, Jesus talked about the temple, talked about the dysfunction of the temple, talked about the dysfunction of the leadership of the temple, and how the people who were serving there weren't even believers in the one true God. And according to 1 Kings chapter 9, that's a trigger clause for the contract. So it could be that when Luke mentions a house in which they were sitting, he may not be referring to a place where they were staying. He could very easily, because of the context of the day, because of the events of that day, because of the cultural significance of that day, he could have gone back and just started referring to this structure the way it had always been referred to, as a house. But you might think, well, that's a bit of a stretch. You're going all the way back to the Old Testament, and it might be weird for Luke not to give any closer context than that distant reference. So let's bring it into the New Testament. I think that's a good idea to see if house is ever used to describe the temple. Well, there's several times that Jesus, in his teaching, referred to the temple as a house. And one of them is found in Luke chapter 11. Uh, There's a parallel passage in Matthew 23 that I'll talk about in just a minute. But here in Luke chapter 11, it's part of Jesus giving some woes. And who's he giving woes to? Well, in the context of the passage, it's the religious leadership, the Pharisees, the lawyers, the religious leaders of the day. And Jesus is describing to them, he says in verse 49, For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will prosecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. And here's verse 51, where he actually uses the term, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. And interestingly enough, if you look at it in the NASB that I'm reading out of, the of God in that description is italicized, which means it's been added to the English, but it's not in the original text. So literally, what Jesus says, he was talking about the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house. And that's how Jesus referred to the temple. He didn't say the house of God. That's what he meant. But he left it at the house. 
And the reason the Matthew 23 parallel passage is important here is because when Matthew records this, he says about Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And the word for temple there could also be translated sanctuary. Matthew uses a different word than Luke does. But when it comes to describing the temple, what's important is that Luke chooses to emphasize the word house that Jesus used. Again, another time in Matthew chapter 12, we have Jesus again dealing with the Pharisees who are challenging he and his disciples for breaking the Sabbath by walking through a grain field and picking heads of grain. And Jesus says this, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread? Jesus is referring to the temple, but he doesn't refer to it as the temple. He refers to it as the house. Now, both of these last two examples, Zechariah and this David example, are Old Testament contexts. So Jesus is going back and using this term from the Old Testament to describe the temple. He calls it a house. But he's here in the New Testament. So clearly the idea of calling the temple the house was still in practice. There's another time in Matthew 21 when Jesus is quoting Old Testament scripture. It's at the temple cleansing. And you may remember already what that scripture is. And Jesus said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. And the parallel passages read the same. You can look at Mark eleven seventeen, Luke nineteen forty six for that. And in the parallel version in John, found at the beginning of John's gospel, John chapter 2, verse 16, quotes Jesus as saying, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. But maybe the most important, maybe the most contextual passage in the New Testament that precedes but also sets up this Acts chapter 2 use of the word house is Jesus' lament at the end of Matthew It's in chapter 23, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And that might sound familiar because that is a direct reference back to the prophecy that God had given them in 1 Kings chapter 9 at the dedication of the temple. Everything that God had warned against in the Old Testament had come true. And Jesus spent the majority of his life here on earth, not just spreading the news of who he is, but spreading the news of the kingdom that he was bringing in, which involved the destruction of the current mismanaged temple in Jerusalem. He is handing Israel their house desolate. And I would suggest that's why Luke chose to write about the day of Pentecost. And when he did, he referred to the location as the house where they were sitting. So we've looked at the questions of who, when, and where of this passage, and I've suggested that it's the 12 who do the speaking in tongues, and that this happens on a highly significant in-gathering day for the Jews that was historically tied to their ancestors' arrival and reception of the Mosaic Law at Mount Sinai. 
And all of this has likely happened at the most significant house in the ancient Jewish context, the house of God, right there at the temple in Jerusalem. Those are my best guesses. And there are good Bible scholars who disagree with me on one or more of those conclusions. But, and let me say this part clearly, no matter what you think about those suggestions for the who, when, and where of this passage, we enter a whole new discussion when we talk about the what and the why of the passage. What exactly happened that day when Pentecost had come? And why did it happen that way? Well, I mentioned them earlier. If you've listened to the three Rethinking Babel episodes, those are episodes 38, 39, and 40, I got a little into the what, but I spent most of my time talking about the why of Pentecost. And the way Luke chooses to describe these events, it connects themes of rebellion and judgment that stretch way back to the early chapters of the book of Genesis. It's the result of rebellion in the spiritual realm and the earthly realm that leads to the events at the Tower of Babel, where God confused the language that heaven and earth shared. The taking away of a common language used throughout the creation and the giving of many languages to discourage and suppress rebellion against the one true God. If you've not listened to those three episodes, they'll give you a little more background for the why of Pentecost. And in the next episode, we'll take a real close look at the what. What exactly happened when those people got up that day and spoke in tongues? What clues does Luke, the author, give us? How does this passage possibly dovetail with 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, the only other significant passage on speaking in tongues in the entirety of the New Testament? Do they even go together? Some would have you believe that they don't. Others would have you believe that they do. But I think everybody's come to slightly the wrong conclusion about the what of the day of Pentecost. Well, that's all I've got for today, but I've got a lot more coming up because it's really the what that people are most interested in. It's the what. But I don't think we can answer the what correctly without having the other questions properly in place. So we've spent a bit of time setting that up, which will allow us to ask some questions of the text the next time we get together. And we'll begin to wonder if the two major viewpoints have gotten it exactly right. Well, if I haven't said it today, thanks again for listening. And please take some time to rate our podcast here. Give us a review. And don't forget to recommend to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast. <laughs>